Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman and today I'm talking to a man whose sense of adventure ranks higher than mine. Probably higher than most people. Spencer Conway has put over 100,000 kilometers on his motorcycle. He's circumnavigated Africa and South America, raising funds for Save the Children. He became the first person to make the trip around Africa solo on two wheels. He's also traveled through 45 countries on those two trips. He's been shot at, stoned, he's been bitten by bullet ants, he's eaten all kinds of food, and his travels have been seen on TV all over the world. His goal, though, is far from being over. Here's his story. Spencer, where, where did this uh, thirst for adventure begin for you, to have traveled through so many countries, many of those by motorcycle? Where did it start for you? Uh, absolutely. Well, basically, it was a combination of two things. My father worked for overseas development, so we moved all over the world. I was brought up in Kenya and uh, until I was six, and then in Swaziland in southern Africa uh, until the university, and then I came over to England. But we always traveled, and uh, I rode motorbikes from a young age. My brother was into motocross and all that sort of business. Mm -hmm. So I got into that. Uh, so I had the love for motorbikes, and I had the love for traveling. So it was a sort of combined element. Um, I got a little bit older, and then motocross becomes a bit dodgy. Mm -hmm. And then you think of another way of traveling, and I thought about um, adventure riding, um, trying to go the distance and uh, see what I could do, really. So were you born in Kenya then, or or had your father moved there shortly after you were born? Sure, I was born in England, but uh, I was whisked away when I was six months old. Okay. So I don't have, <laughs> yeah. I don't have yeah. much of a memory of England. Yeah, and when did you get on your first motorcycle or, or motorbike? Um, five years old. Five years old, and that would have been a, yeah. a like a dirt bike at the time, or or what yeah, it was a little it was a little monkey bike. I don't know if you know them with the fat wheels, uh, really low, um, really good for children to learn on. Um, I don't know if you get them uh, over in the states or Canada or anywhere like that, but they've got very very fat wheels, so it's a good way to learn. And uh, over in uh, in Africa, all the all the boys just go out on farm bikes. You know, you don't need the legal papers, and you all around. And I just got hooked on it, so. Um, yeah, it seemed obvious what to do, really. <laughs> so, I mean, your your first trip, uh, the first trip that anyway catches uh, a lot of people's attention, going uh, circumnavigating Africa, that wasn't until your 40s, early 40s, when you did that. Yeah, absolutely. I, ha I have two daughters, and uh, my my aim really was to circumnavigate Africa, but I wanted to wait till they were a little bit older. Uh -huh. So they were 9 and 11 when I went. So, you know, they're okay. Their mum was here because I did it solo, uh, unsupported. So I went through 34 countries and did 55,345 kilometers, which is one and a quarter times around the equator, and it took me uh, nine and a half months. Um, my original intention was to just write a book, uh, mm -hmm. but uh, mm -hmm. I decided to film it, and I filmed it myself. I had a camera mounted on the bike. I had, obviously, the GoPro, which is old-fashioned now, but, and then I had a handheld um, digital and I took it to Travel Channel, which is owned by Discovery Channel. And they looked at two minutes and they bought the series. So it was luck. Yeah, yeah. So, well, <laughs> it's funny to hear you say the words, too, to just write a book. I mean, that's a, that's a substantial undertaking to do, too. Sure, but I found out, I found out that I can't write very well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I got, uh, I got the program, so it pushed me on. Because um, I worked on two jobs. I worked all day. Uh, construction and then I was teaching in the evenings for two years to save up the money for the Africa trip because mm -hmm. it was completely self-funded 
So it was a big, it was a big risk for me. It was leaving my kids. It was leaving my wife for a, a year, but it ended ended up being great and a, a, an incredible experience. How long had that trip been in the works? You had been thinking about it and, and planning it uh, to do the the circumnavigation of Africa. Yeah, I think I planned it as soon as I came out of my mother. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but it, uh, yeah, it took, as you say, 40 years or so. Um, it took about six months of proper planning um, just before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, but I don't, I don't travel with a GPS, I don't travel with a phone, and I don't travel with a map. So there was no planning as in routes. I just sort of asked five people the way, and if two of them said the same thing, I'd, I'd go that way. It was normally wrong, but... Uh, it was a way of yeah. seeing, you see, what I found was if you, if you follow I Overlander or, or Mappy Me, and you always end up in the same places as everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, just by the nature of it, because all the backpackers that are listed are the same. And uh, I just wanted to do it rough. Um, I, I did it on a budget, because obviously it was my own money. Uh, but the whole idea was to make it not Hollywood, make it for like normal guys like us. Mm-hmm. So I camped, I camped for 267 nights in the bush. I ate sardines all day long. Um, and I just kept it as, as low as I could. So that people like Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, it's a Hollywood production. Yeah. But guys yeah. like us look at it. We haven't got a film crew. We haven't got a doctor. We haven't got a psychologist. We can't afford it. So I just thought, oh, well, I'll try and do it. And then people might watch it and go, hey, that's kind of cool. I can do a bit of that or I can pick that country. So I wanted to inspire people, and I also raised uh, quite a bit of money for children in Africa. Um, and my main aim is to be the first person to circumnavigate every continent in the world over the next 10 years. Uh, there's a lot of things, uh, a lot of jumping off points from, from that. Uh, I, I want to get to the, the circumnavigating the world later on. Um, okay. But the idea of going there without a GPS, without a map, without a phone, I know that's probably something you've got a lot of pushback from other people about. How did that serve you in the end? What, what did you find? Um, how did you find that that changed the way that you saw things and, and experienced yeah. things? Okay, cool. It, it absolutely changed everything, the nature of the trip. Uh, for example, from uh, Cape Town to Cairo is 12,500 kilometers. I did 23,000 kilometers. So I sort of doubled the distance. I ended up doing 55,345. It's nowhere near that. But what it does is it takes you down to places that people haven't regularly been to. Uh, there aren't tourists there. So, I mean, for example, in, uh, in Ecuador, I went down a road, and then it turned into a little dirt road, then it turned into a track, and I made my way down, and I came to a village, and it was, it was the kind of thing you dream of. There was uh, 200 villagers there. They obviously weren't used to any foreigners whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Uh, they let me camp on the beach there. And then in the evening, all 200 of the villagers came and sat around on the beach with me, the whole village. And we had a fantastic evening. My Spanish isn't super hot, but you know, you manage with sign language. And it's this unpredictability. You don't know what road you're going to go on. Uh, you don't know what you're going to see. Because I don't, I don't like doing touristy things like Machu Picchu and you know, uh, number one it's been seen a thousand times on mm-hmm. TV and also I, I like to get away from tourists I'm not I'm not super sociable and I like to experience things uh, in the rough in a way um, and you you see roads uh, for example there's a road in Colum- in Bolivia called Death Road all bikers know about it uh, now, Death Road is a real disappointment to me because they've closed it to cars. It's full of 
50, 60, 100 mountain bikes every day. You can buy t-shirts, I survived death road. Uh, they even have a toll now where you've got to pay. And it kind of takes the beauty away for me. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas there's a it's called the Devil's Trampoline in Colombia. Uh, it's, it's called that because people bounce off the edge and you never see them again because there's a thousand foot drop. But that was just amazing. It was like a Spielberg film, like giant butterflies, waterfalls coming down the road, lianas, and only locals, and just the odd truck. But a stunning, stunning ride. And I found that I found loads of these different off-road, beautiful rides because I wasn't following a map. Um, the criticism I have had is that if something goes wrong, you've got no one to call. Right. Um, you're, right. you're putting the emergency services at risk, etc., etc. I don't have an answer to that, Martin. I don't have an answer. It's just the way I travel, and it's been okay so far. So what are you taking with you on, this, on these trips to make sure that you have what you need for the, the time you're going to be on the road? And how do you handle the case of if you don't know necessarily the places you're going to go to make sure you're going to have enough gas to get to where you need to be. Yeah, absolutely. I'm quite lucky because I'm riding an XT660Z Tenere, which has a 23-liter tank, which is a good start. But if I was, for example, I went through the Amazon, um, a, a road called Ghost Road, it's 885 kilometers of dirt. And I knew that there was pretty much nothing until you got to uh, Boa Vista. So I took the 23 litres full tank, I got two 5 litre jerry cans uh, and strapped them to my panniers mm -hmm. and I put another 5 litres on my back and I took 8 litres of water. As long as you got water and fuel and a tent, the world's not as big as people think. You'll get out of there whether it's two days or three days. It's just having enough sardines or whatever to keep you going. Um, just a bit of forward planning and also the obvious things that all bikers know you know, check your chain tension, check the lube, check the um, the coolant level, check the oil, check the tire pressure. I just did the regular sort of things every few days just to keep the bike ticking over. What were your staples? What did you rely on? The things that you knew bringing with you were going to get you through uh, what you needed to, to do? Sure, absolutely. I kept it pretty basic. I had a tent. Um, I had a two-man tent with a, a little inflatable sleeping mat which is very handy. That's, that was my sort of uh, luxury item. Uh -huh. And then, as I said before, water, vital. And I did, I took uh, bread and sardines. And then you, you do find fruit. Um, I killed a couple of chickens, a couple of snakes, um, just whatever you find along the way. But they've got these, uh, these chickens, they're unbelievable. I call them racing chickens. They're about as small as a tennis ball, but their legs are like a foot long. So they're extremely fast. So, I mean, out of chasing 25 or so, I only caught one. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you just, as you, as you go along, you make way. But to me, water's the most important. So when you're catching these chickens and snakes, like you're just running around trying to scoop them up with your bare hands? Yeah, you have... pretty much that. Um, I'm okay with snakes. I'm a snake lover. I've got snakes in my house. Uh, and I'm, I'm not scared to, to catch them, so that's not a problem for me. Uh, but that was only in uh, only in like dire circumstances. I did that in Africa more than I did in South America. Uh -huh. South America is a little bit more organized. It's a little bit easier. I'm glad I did Africa first because you have more problems with roads. You have problems with fuel. I had many more punctures in Africa. So it was a great one to start um, before doing South America. Being that Africa was your first one, had you had any kind of overnight trips or, or week-long trips leading up to it, or were you going into it uh, totally fresh, starting right away? 
Yeah, no, I did um, from Swaziland, where I'm from, to Cape Town, which was uh, 2,200 kilometers. And I did uh, most of Europe uh, over about five months. And uh, as I said, I've been riding from very young. Uh, I know Africa uh, because I'm, I'm from there. So I wasn't as worried in a way about Africa because I know the culture I get on. South America was a whole new entity to me, a whole new ball game, a, a closed book. But uh, yeah, it was just great. People were brilliant. Had some problems, uh, but you know, made it. Tell me about some of the memorable problems that you faced, uh, first in Africa and, and then in South America. Sure. Okay, well in Africa, you can't really beat this one. I got shot in Africa. Um, I was on the border with uh, Kenya and Somalia. And uh, it's, there's a, an area, it's about 500 kilometers. There's pretty much nothing, dirt road. And I'm sure you've heard of the Somali pirates that are kidnapping ships and things like that. Sure, yeah. This is, where they, this is where they train these guys on this border with Kenya. And I was riding along and I just waved to these three guys on a hill. And they just turned around and started shooting uh, an AK-47. It took off the back tire, got a bullet hole through the swing arm. The brake caliper exploded, went through my arm, came out the other side, fell off, broke three ribs. Jumped back on the bike, but I had no tire. It was gone. I mm -hmm. just had to swim. So I just rode off expecting to be shot in the back. Uh, the police later told me that they must have run out of bullets because guns are like $100, which is super cheap, but bullets are like $20 each. And they said they wouldn't have shot you and got you and then not shot you afterwards. So I rode off expecting to be shot. I wasn't. I went into the bush, slept there in the rain 15 hours. Well, I didn't sleep. And then I walked about... 30 kilometers and I found a Catholic mission with a German priest there and uh, he helped me out got me to hospital and then uh, a few weeks later I went back and got the bike so yeah that was a uh, memorable in a negative way mm -hmm. um, South America absolutely fantastic had a crash uh, in the salt flats I don't know do you, have you heard of the Salado Uni salt flats yeah in Bolivia it's a super cool place and I think what people don't realize is 100 times the size of Bonneville so it is a seriously big place. It is 12,000 square kilometers. And if you just imagine like a circle with a, a road bisecting east to west and north to south, a track, that's pretty much what they got. But I wanted to go off track and film so that you could get just nobody. And it's never happened to me before. I don't know what went on, but the tire didn't just burst. It came off the rim. I don't know to this day. But uh, I was weaving at 80. I had the camera woman on the back, who's also my girl. And uh, I was think I thought I was really cool. I was holding this, controlling it, sliding. And I just get this tap on the back of the helmet as I'm trying to control it. And she says, are you ever going to stop? <laughs> I was like, my Jesus Christ. But anyway, we came, we came off. It wasn't too serious. But uh, the tire was, was finished. So I tried to s fix it with the inflator, but my inflator failed. So we left all the equipment, the cameras the tent, the sleeping bags, the panniers, everything. And we rode out at five kilometers an hour on the rim. And we got to an island and uh, we met these two guys. They kept us for the night. And to give you some idea of how big this place is, we had three guys looking for our equipment for three days. And they only found it on the third day because it wasn't on the designated route. But why it was so great was when we saw it in the distance, it was me and these three truck drivers squashed into this cab. And they're like, that's your stuff, that's your stuff. And they were just jumping in the air, hugging me. And they didn't ask for any money, nothing. Out of the kindness of their hearts, they took three days of their life. And it was like we'd won the lottery or something. It was a wonderful feeling. 
uh, and I had that all the way along. It's people. I mean, the landscapes, the riding, we all love it. That's why we ride motorbikes. But mm -hmm. it's mm -hmm. the people that really do make the difference. I mean, Venezuela is probably my favorite country in South America, but it is in such a terrible state. Um, there's no money there. If you do get hold of money, you need a suitcase about this big to, well, you can't see what I'm doing because it's radio, but a massive suitcase full of money for a loaf of bread. So consequently, there's no money there. Um, they're having problems with the government, but the people are just superb. And, you know, in the face of adversity, people seem to stick together on occasions. So that was a really memorable one. And it's very, very difficult to get into Venezuela. I did manage it. But when I tried to get out on the other side with Colombia, they wouldn't allow me because it, for the last three years, it's only been foot passengers. So I had this problem. Mm -hmm. But uh, mm -hmm. I'll tell you a little thing. Um, I needed a tire. So I said to them, can I go to Colombia for one hour? So they said, yeah, no problem. So I went to Colombia, walked, got into Colombia, got myself a tire because they don't have any in Venezuela. And when I came to bring it back, they said, no, you're not allowed a tire here. And I thought, oh, God, I've spent $80. This is bloody ridiculous. Um, and they sent me back. And when I went back, there was a one-legged guy. And he said to me, hey, I can smuggle that through for you. No problem. I'm gonna, I can go under the bridge, across a river, through the jungle. I'll come out the other side. If you give me one dollar, I'll do that for you. So it happened. It was it was bloody hilarious. He, this guy hopped through the river, hopped through the jungle, came out the other side, holding my tire in the air, mm -hmm. saying, "I've got mm -hmm. it, I've got it," and giving the fingers up to the customs officers because he was already in another country. So that was a good little anecdote. But I was uh, I was 200 kilometers from my destination because I'd gone all the way around South America, every country, mm -hmm. and I was coming mm -hmm. back into Colombia. I couldn't do it. After three weeks, they just said, no, you're not allowed to take the bike. So I think I took the world's biggest detour. I did 12,000 more kilometers. I had to go all the way back through Venezuela, all the way through the Amazon, into Ecuador, into Peru, and back to Colombia. So instead of taking eight months, it was one year and four months. And did you have... Um... Did you have flights that you had planned that you were trying to get back at a certain time? Did you have those expectations that you had to reschedule things? Yeah, absolutely. I had my flight booked and, uh, you know, it's all money, isn't it? You know, we're not zillionaires here, but I had no choice. My choice was to drive really fast. And I thought, no, I'm not, I'm not a speed rider. I'm really not. I, I, I'm a distance rider. I like to see the countryside. So I just thought, no, I'm risking my life. Um, I'm just going to take it a bit more slowly. And then, um, about I rode for 14 days with uh, man flu. That's what they call it over here, uh, where men go, oh, I've got a cold, I feel really sick. Um, it wasn't that. I had malaria. So um, I ended up collapsing in the street, and then I was in hospital. So that was another delay. Mm. And then straight after that, the camera woman got blood poisoning, and she was in hospital for a month. So, uh, yeah. You know, on these long trips, uh, you've just got to take it as it comes, you, you, you know, day by day, border by border. That's what I say, man. That, that's one of the things that you've brought up again and again in, in interviews of yours, uh, of having to just kind of accept things as they come, or especially the delays, too, dealing with the unexpected. Were you always that way, or, or has travel made you that way? Uh, you know, there's, there's two things I've always believed. Um, You've, you've got to respect other people's way of life. and other, I'm not being a hippie. I really believe this. Uh, people have this polite attitude, Africa especially. 
and South America the same. A lot of riders make the mistake of living in their speed, so they rush up to a, a, a border control or a, whoever, a shopkeeper. They, they keep their bike running, they keep their helmet on, they like, do you know the way to Machu Picchu? And it immediately puts people's backs up. My biggest bit of advice would be slow down, live at their pace, respect their customs, take your helmet off, turn your engine off, get off the bike, shake hands, introduce yourself, ask them how they are. And worldwide, that, that works. It shows respect. And it's the same thing with borders. You, I mean, I've waited, I waited at the Angola border for 36 days um, because I, I, they just didn't have tourists going in. But eventually they cracked and they were sick of me camping outside the border control. And eventually they said, okay, you can go. So I just stayed polite. If you start getting up and saying, getting upset and saying, oh, you know, I've got a business meeting in two hours and I've got to get through the border, they'll send you to the back of the queue. So I just think respect for people, take it as it comes. Because if you're doing a trip like that, you just have to. If you're doing, if you don't have time, I'm very lucky I've got time. Uh, a lot of people, they've only got a week or two mm -hmm. weeks and they've got their dream trip set up. So what I say to that is have some flexibility. If you can't go on the exact route that you chose, you'll still have an amazing adventure, even if it's for a weekend. People get into trouble when you have expectations for things and what, uh, what, what you think an experience is going to be like. You spent 36 days, 36 days at a border. <laughs> what were you doing for that during that time? Were you just camping out there? I was writing... Uh, my book, which I told you ended up being useless, and uh, just talking to people and just reading, trying to pass the time. Um, obviously, I did a little bit of riding back out and yeah. then came yeah. back the next day, but I always camped in the same place because I wanted to be in their face. I wanted them to get tired of me. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And were you talking to them every day, uh, having, having conversations? Or? Yeah, that's you know, that's another thing, you know, people say about uh, borders that it's one of the most frustrating things for bikers. But I say, take it as one of the funnest things. Because, I mean, for example, in Ecuador, in Ecuador-Peru border, there's just a little hut on either side. And uh, I went up to the guy and I was like, my passport's here. And he said, hold on a minute. And he walked across the road. He took all his clothes off, everything. He was completely naked, hung a pipe over a tree and proceeded to have a shower. And uh, then he had his shower, got all dressed up, did his hair in a car mirror, and then came over to me and was like, okay, I'm ready uh, to stamp your passport. And he had a, a Hawaiian shirt on, and he was dancing around like stamping my passport. For me, it was such an eccentric but brilliant occasion. So instead of sitting there going, oh, for God's sake, this is an, hour de an hour's delay, right. just look at it the other way. It's a human experience. And I've, a lot of borders, you meet, you meet interesting people, you often meet other travelers, you can discuss things. So if someone says to you it's going to be one hour at the border, just think, okay, it's going to be 10. And anything under that, you're happy. You have a great story of going to the border, I believe it was in Congo, and crossing through the jungle there. Could you tell me that one? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, there's, a, there's a border called Matadi, which everybody go, all bikers and overlanders pick that coastal route. But I thought I'd go through the center. And they did have a border, but my Michelin map uh, for Africa, which was the only map I had, was 1997, I think. And this Makela de Zombo border... I wasn't sure if it existed. So I got onto this road and the road disappeared and it was just became a track. 
and I had a machete, so I started cutting my way through. I have a compass. This is how I travel as well. Sorry, I forgot to mention that. Because you're going north or south, that's it really. Mm -hmm. And um, it, the track just became nothing. So it took me a whole day to do 10 kilometers. So I'd hack through, push the bike, hack through, push the bike. But then I turned up at this hut and there was this dude there. And I just walked out the jungle. Um, I left the bike because there was a particularly steep bit up to his, his uh, hut. And he just freaked out. You know, six foot four white guy covered in mud and stuff like that. And uh, yeah, his uh, his border stamp was completely dried out, so he couldn't sign, he couldn't stamp my passport. And he was like, "No worries, what I can do is I'll I'll write this." And I'm not joking. He got my passport and he wrote in pen, "Spencer Conway can pass through the border legally." Yeah. I was like, "Man, <laughs> this is not gonna work." And uh, yeah, he's, he, I went and I I managed to get through. And he said that it was the first time in four years. That he'd seen someone come through that route. Oh so, my gosh! I found that amazing. What is he doing there for four years? If nobody's coming through, that's got to be a, a long day to get through. A hell of a long day. He's got a little farm, so the border is actually his house, and he's got a little farm, and his wife is there and his kids. So yeah. I mean, he lives there, but he he did have his uniform on. Yeah. So I suppose he was just hoping for some customer again in another four years. You were the biggest excitement of uh, of the, that four years yeah for but, yeah was, yeah and the next person he sees in four years time he'll say oh i saw another guy so yeah no it was a it was a great moment and you you do have moments like that especially traveling with no no gps etc i want to go back to something that you spoke of a little bit before uh mentioning how the people in venezuela uh well in, in your experience in venezuela was among your favorites I think there is probably uh, a bit of fear that people have anytime they go to a country where the, the customs are not familiar to them or the language is a different one. Uh, they don't know what to expect and they might feel as though they don't know what they're getting themselves into. What has your experience been uh, meeting people from around the world, different countries, different cultures, different customs, the things that you've learned from, from being in places that people don't go to? So that's a really good question, actually. You know what? I, I believe that you shouldn't read foreign office websites. You shouldn't read the English websites because they will tell you, you won't go anywhere. They, they warn you about every country. No, you can't go there. You can't go there. Now, when I was going to Venezuela, I knew it was going to be really difficult to get in. It had just been voted the world's most dangerous country. Now, honestly, honestly, Martin, when I go in there, you, I arrived at the first village. And they said to me, Spencer, Spencer, you are safe here. This place is fantastic. But the next village is very dangerous. They'll kill you. Then I went to the next village and they said the same thing about the next. They're like, yeah, we're fine here. But if you go to the next place and it was all the way through. And I'm not saying they don't have problems, but it's like anything. Sorry, it's an old cliche. You can walk out of the out on the road here in London, and get hit by a bus. And that's the end of you. So, you know, be polite. Uh, look for the positives, uh, respect people's customs. And what I learned the most of all, everybody's really cool. You mm. know, uh, the, especially the, the bike is always a really great um, talking point because it's got, well, now it's got 121 flags on it. Um, so it looks really colorful. So people just see it and you've immediately broken the ice. They're like, wow, where are you going? This is crazy. So the first conversation is really easy. And then you just keep it going from there. You get invited to stay at people's houses. And I felt bad sometimes. I turned down 
a lot of invites because I wanted to make a bit more progress or for whatever reason. But uh, generally speaking, human beings are great. Tell me about the meals that you were eating along the way, the ones that uh, stick out to you being memorable for one reason or another, whether it was a case of just being so totally undigestible or whether it was something just totally uh, different to you uh, that you'd never tried before. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, One particular one, and I apologize to Nigeria if anyone's listening, uh, they have cow's cheek, um, which doesn't sound too bad. But it's uh, really it's the consistency of uh, what comes out of your nose. That's about the only way I can put it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was sitting in the typical situation with 15 people watching me to see if I was enjoying it. So, of course, I had to stomach that. Uh, other memorable things are snake, of course, but I've eaten that when I was younger. I killed a few snakes. Um, and obviously, a lot of people who have been South America will know guinea pig is very big on the menu. But it looks quite funny. It's... Uh, it looks like a guinea pig that you've, you've, your daughter owned and then you run over it with your car and then you put it on a plate because it's there with its feet, it's there with its head, you can see its teeth. So for some people it's a bit of a freak out, but I'm not a vegetarian. So um, yeah, and then on the road, mangoes, whatever fruit you come across, but I always do carry sardines and corned beef because it's, uh, it's salty, tasty with a little bit of bread. You've got a meal there ready in two minutes. You have uh, described before what, you, what you've done, the, the kind of uh, motorcycle riding that you're doing. Again, it's being almost the opposite of the, the Ewan McGregor type of big production where there's big budgets involved and there's a whole lot of elaborate planning going on. You're, you're trying to make the point that anybody can do this. Can you speak to, to your philosophy there? I, I, just, I, just wanted to, I just wanted to do something so that anybody could look at it and go, oh, God, I can go there, or I can go to Angola. I don't need to be a millionaire Hollywood star. It just makes it more accessible. People see me camping, eating a bit of dodgy stuff. I turned down uh, brand-new bikes from Honda. Honda offered me the Africa Twin and the Cross Tourer. Yamaha offered me the new Super Tenere. And this is for free. And I said no, because I want my bike. I, I want my bike to, be the, to make it around every continent in the world. Uh, I'm not the world's best mechanic, but I know how to keep the bike running. So it's done 113,000 kilometers now, and it's still going strong. So, yeah, I just think it would be kind of cool. I don't want a shiny new, brand new bike each series. I just want to try and keep it a bit real. And I've, I've got an attachment to that bike now, of course. What are the, the things, the other memories that you look back on, whether it's experiences with people whether it is just a moment in time, uh, a, a surroundings that you find yourself in, uh, as you think back on your trip around South America and your trip uh, through Africa. Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, as I said before, it's always people. But uh, one thing that surprised me in South America was that I'm absolutely useless with altitude. I didn't realize uh, there was one particular volcano, Tunga Rahura, which is 5,023 meters. Um, I don't know what that is in feet for English people, I'm afraid, but it's tall. It's uh, like higher than Mount Kenya, Mount Kilimanjaro. It's up there with the big mountains. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was riding up there, absolutely beautiful. You know, the classic volcano shape with the skyline there, stunning. But uh, I got a little slap on the back of the head on my helmet from the camera woman. And she said, ah, oh, who's my girlfriend, by the way? And uh, she said, you're riding really badly. So I said, what are you talking about? She said, no, no, your, your decisions are wrong. And I realized that uh, I wasn't thinking straight. 
I had altitude sickness and I got off the bike and we had a little sort of altercation and then I was putting my gloves on and I realized that it was taking me like a minute like to put my gloves on and then I thought no this is not right uh, so we turned around and uh, went back and we stayed two more days we tried again and on the third occasion I made it and that was one of the really memorable occasions because I struggled to do it but then I overcame it and it was stunningly beautiful. So, yeah, you know, you've got these white-capped mountain peaks rising up to 5,000 meters. And we went up filming. We got to the top of Tungarahura, and there was no one there at all. And then we heard this loud music coming from down below. They always play music, always, always. And uh, we, we filmed. We got down to the village. And when we got down, they were like, where were you guys? We said, no, we were up Tungarahura. They said, didn't you hear the alarm? So, no, we didn't hear any alarm, and it was an alarm that the volcano was going to become active, but it, it didn't. Um, but yeah, stunningly beautiful. Um, really, my highlight times are when I'm in the middle of nowhere, pretty much alone, and just dealing with it and setting up camp and getting my routine going. I stop about half four, so I've got plenty of time to set up before it gets dark. And uh, just the solitude and the, the sounds of the jungle and the animals and... I'm a big animal lover. I also went to a place called Punta Tombo in Argentina, which is a, a nature reserve, and they have 250,000 penguins. Now, oh, wow. people, I, I assume that penguins live by the sea or on the ice or whatever. They live in the desert. It was unbelievable. They dig holes under these little scrubs, and they live in 30-degree desert, and they're having, like, fights with armadillos and vicunas and llamas. So the guy at the, at, the, at the game reserve said, hey, listen, man, if you want, when the game reserve is closed, you can stay here. So I stayed there on my own all night mm -hmm. with not a single other person in the game reserve. Oh, it was magical. I mean, early morning, just animals walking past, penguins hopping past me, uh, elephant seals, just, just amazing. You originally set off to raise funds for Save the Children. Uh, what was it about that cause that spoke to you? Okay, this is a difficult one for me, buddy, because I'm not a firm believer in, in charity. I really don't believe it goes to the right places. Uh, I believe a lot of the, I mean, for example, one of the heads of these organizations, I won't say, he makes 250,000 US dollars a year sitting in his office. So uh, I have a strange relationship with it, but I have two girls. And I thought, if I'm going to raise money, why not do it for the innocent people, so do it for the kids. And I insisted, when I spoke to Save the Children, I had a meeting with them. I said, listen, guys, no disrespect, but I want to go and see the projects where my money's going. So they were great. They were kind enough to show me around these uh, children's homes for like homeless kids that were taken in. And my money went in. I designated my money towards one of these homes. Uh, because I'm very suspicious of these things. I don't want to put people off fundraising, but I just want I want people to think a bit more clearly about where it might be going. What was your experience in seeing those places? It, what also, more broadly, just in, in seeing the support that you got from people. You know, you, you put yourself out there saying, I'm doing this ride, and to have people show their support to you. I'll tell you what, the, the public are so, so nice. It, it is incredible. It's, it's quite humbling. Um, yeah, I raised quite a bit of money, and uh, I, I suspect if we could all see the projects that it was going to, we'd all be a lot happier. 
Um, but it's a difficult one for them. It's a difficult one. There's a lot of charities doing amazing things. And if we can help one child, that's super good, isn't it? You've mentioned before in our conversation, the, the plan is not just to stop at these two continents, but to make it around the world. Uh, where does your planning take you next? What, what's on your horizon? Okay, um, I did loads of research into this whole thing because I didn't want to talk rubbish. And of course, a lot of people have been, I mean, Nick Sanders, a lot of people have been around the world six, seven times, you know, even with a boiled egg on their head or whatever they do to get publicity. Hmm. And I'm not denying that. But there isn't anybody who has actually circumnavigated every continent. I haven't found in my research anywhere, even world travelers that have been going for 10 years. They generally go down one side of South America or one side of Africa. and then. So I just thought, you know, try and do something. It's difficult these days to do something that people haven't done because they've done most things. Mm -hmm. So I just thought, yep, um, try and circumnavigate every single continent. Try and inspire people to ride more and uh, help out with money a bit. And the next one is going to be, I'm going to start again in Bogota where I finished. So it continues the trip. Then I'm going to go through the Darien Gap. Because uh, there's no road, of course, between Colombia and Panama, so you have to go through the jungle. And then I'm going to do Central America, North America, Alaska, and Canada. So it should take uh, two years riding every day. I want to uh, I want to challenge you on saying North America and Canada because Canada is part of North America. Uh, I'm terribly sorry, the United States. I uh, I imagine that uh, comes from Canadians in our sense of uh, of. Uh, feeling like the younger brothers at times, at many times, <laughs> to the I U.S. So agree. I so agree with you that on that, and I do apologize, buddy. That's all right. Uh, I, won't, I won't make that mistake again. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to Canada as well, because um, I have a lot of friends up there. Oh, good, um, good. Yeah, I met, I met a guy on the Africa trip, a Canadian dude, and uh, I've got, it looks like I've got quite a bit of accommodation uh, all the way around. So that helps as well. It keeps the cost down. You meet other bikers. Um, I, th I think, as you know, and um, bikers are, are pretty supportive of each other. And it's quite a it's quite a cool community. So it's like you're doing, you know, you're inspiring bikers to your, your with your program. So yeah, yeah, I, I just love it, love it. How are you um, keeping yourself able to to do these trips? Or when you get back from a trip, are you going back to working in some capacity to then go back on the bike? Are you being able to? Uh, get enough to fund you through your, your the television programs now? How, how are you making it happen? Sure, absolutely. As I said before, the first trip to Africa, I funded myself by doing two jobs um, for two years, spent every penny of it. Uh, luckily, they bought the programs. That covered the costs that I had before, and I probably had a dollar left over or something. Um, and that, that enabled me to do South America. Mm -hmm. Now, I've, it's my money again, so I'm in a bit of trouble. But uh, if the next program sell okay, then that will allow me to continue. So I'm never going to be a rich man. I don't care. I want, I want to see the world. I can't complain. So if it keeps going the way it is, everything's going to be all right. Because uh, it's an expensive business. I mean, life is expensive. South America's not cheap. Africa's a little bit cheaper. But I mean, Chile, Argentina, and Brazil are very uh, westernized, or whatever the word you want to use. And uh, yeah, it's not cheap. What has all of this brought to you to have visited as many countries as you have, to have uh, had the time to, to ride on your bike around these countries, to have met the people you've met? What has that brought to you or what has that changed in you? Sure. Okay. Number one, it's, uh, made, it's made me feel very privileged 
because I do realize that 99.9% of the world can't do this. Uh, everyone would like to go on a world trip, and I don't want people to hate me for it. It's just the way it happened. Uh, but it's like people say to me, oh, can you be an adventure rider if you go off for a week? Of course you can. You can be an adventure rider if you go off for a day. It just depends on you. If you're pushing yourself and a bit out of your comfort zone, isn't that adventure riding? Even if you're in your, in your local town. So for me, it's just get out there, get on the bike, enjoy. Uh, it's made me realize, actually, that the world isn't as big as I thought, which is quite disappointing, hmm. but that generally people are welcoming. People don't want to argue. If you start off on the wrong foot, then you know, you're in their country. Then they'll, you'll put their backs up. But if you're nice and friendly, you won't have any problems. Um, you know, 127 countries, I've had that one problem. Okay, it was a shooting, but it's a different situation. Those people are terrorists. They're not our normal public. Uh, all those countries, everybody's been just wonderful. And I've made friends everywhere. And on top of that, a really nice thing is that I get to go to a lot of bike shows um, when I'm here for the few months that I'm back. So I go to the Milan bike show. I go to the Manchester bike show, the London bike show. And you get a chance. I give a talk on stage and stuff like that. My bike's up there. It looks really cool. And uh, you get to talk to people who enjoy the same thing that you do. And... Uh, that's what I think biking's about. It's about international understanding and enjoying your motorbikes. I don't give a damn if you ride a Honda C90 or a, an R1. It's irrelevant. We're all just on bikes. That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. If you enjoyed the show, you can do me a favor. Hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review and pass it along to a friend or two. If you want to keep in touch with the show, a couple things you can do. Follow Story Untold on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time.